Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 60 of the podcast, the topic is the future of royalty. Our guest is His Royal Highness, Prince Michel de Yugoslavie, grandson of King Umberto of Italy and Prince Paul of Yugoslavia. In this conversation, we talk about growing up as a pan-European royal. We cover his deep interest in art and success with exhibiting his photography. We also touch on trends in family wealth considerations. We discuss his time as a high-end real estate broker in Palm Beach, Florida, and he shares his life experience as a royal and the lessons that apply for anybody with a family legacy. At the end, we briefly discuss the future of royalty. A word from one of our partners. The Ritosa Summit is the leading family office conference, the largest and most influential gathering of family wealth, representing US $4.5 trillion and some 1,000 family offices. Throughout the year, summits are held in Monte Carlo, Monaco, Dubai, UAE, and Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, with a virtual keynote panel keeping the community connected in between. Michel, I'm, I'm very happy to, to have you here at the Ritosa Summit. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm honored uh, to have your Royal Highness here. What, um, what can you tell me um, uh, about your background that nobody knows? And then we'll, we'll get into a little bit, uh, you know, where you come from. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Something that nobody knows about me. Well, they found me and no, I'm really born from my mother yes. and my twin brother. Um, being from a royal family is something that for the first 10 years of my life, I was almost not allowed to talk about when I was in school. I remember my parents saying, don't say you're a prince, don't say this, don't say that. So it's kind of strange to, to be born with yeah. great power and not be able to use it right away. Yeah. So you went to, to boarding school in, in, uh, in, Swiss, in Switzerland, in France, France. Switzerland and yes, France. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and was that an environment where everyone was encouraged to kind of keep their background a little bit close to heart or was it especially from your, your background? That's a very interesting question because I never really asked the others. Um, it was kind of it's very interesting. I, I probably took it for granted that because I couldn't say where I came from, yeah. all the others were probably doing the same. I didn't really question, nor myself, nor the others. And now, seeing it, probably, probably not. Probably everybody was different. I have to go and ask some of them yeah. that we are still friends with 50 years later. So, so were you happy with that schooling? Was it was it the right environment for you? I mean, people come from from a lot of interesting backgrounds at these uh, Swiss boarding schools. I've understood. Yes, absolutely. They were. It was very international. We had Americans, we had English, we had Greeks, we had uh, uh, yeah Italians also. It was international, and I felt good. I mean, the first day I was a bit upset being away from my family, and I remember I was. On the f sitting on the floor, a bit sobbing, and one girl came in the room and says, oh, hello, my name is Claire. She gave me a kiss and come and play with us. And that was it. And I had a nice time. So you, you have lived around the world, 
you speak many different languages. Italian, I understand, Portuguese, uh, Spanish, Spanish, and uh, French and English. French and English. Uh, I studied in Germany. I did the business school, so I used to be uh, much more fluent in German than now because all the classes were in German. Right. It was a business school, so we had law, we had economics. Uh, I, I remember I, I could go in restaurants and order and go to grocery store and ask for things, but. I haven't practiced a lot, but it comes back. Uh, I've been learning Serbian and that's very difficult. Yes. Yes, that's completely different. Well, I saw a video where you went back to Serbia for the, for the first time. That must have been very emotional. It was. So you had to bring your camera to, uh, to really enjoy it. Actually, I did. And I remember the, the, the night before flying to, to Serbia, I, I couldn't sleep. You know, I was so excited. It was like I had this... Uh, kid-like energy where you want to do something, you've never done it, you're, uh, it, it was interesting. And, and was I, it all what you had thought or was it different? Not at all. No. Uh, it was different. I, I didn't know what to expect and um, I enjoyed it. I didn't stay much the first time. Uh, then I went again, we, we brought the body of my grandfather who was the last regent. And that was an official ceremony, it was a f state funeral. It was very emotional. There were lots of people um, just waiting to, 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 for, for his coffin to come by. Uh, we even had the president of the Serbian Republic who came, who made a speech in which he said that basically the communist authorities uh, were wrong, that my grandfather was a patriot, because the communists, when they banned the royal family, they said that we were criminals, bandits, uh, they took away our nationality and pro most of all they took our possessions away. Hmm. So when we came back, uh, we could uh, we rehabilitated the image of the family, which then allowed you to ask for the nationality and once you get it back, it allows you to ask for your properties. And my grandmother had bought a house in 1941 and we got it back four years ago. <laughs> tell me, tell me, I mean, you know, not only are you from a royal family, but I, I've understood that in, in a sense that royal house is, is also related like many royal families to, to many of the others. But, but also, if I just think back to school and, you know, Archduke Ferdinand and the beginning of world wars, I mean, this, is not a, this was not a s small place in Europe back then. It has an oversized uh, role in European history. Yeah, the Balkans were like the center of all the... Um problems that, that happened. It was a uh, influence or not cold war, but uh, secret wars almost between the East and the West, the, uh, between nationalities, between religions. Uh, the, unfortunately, with the game of alliances that triggered really World War I, um, it, wow. it's unfortunate. And I, I read a lot of books that say that World War I started Everybody thought it would last for a week. They were going to show how brave they were. And uh, I think the, 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 the head of, of the German-Austrian armies wanted to show his girlfriend how brave a soldier he was. I mean, I think everything was completely misunderstood. Yeah, it's, I mean, there are many, many theories. I've, I've heard it from the angle of the understanding of time. You know, I'm a student of history, and, and there was something strange about how diplomacy, you know, always was, is slow. 
at least in an ideal world, and we're going to get to our contemporary world where nothing is slow and this becomes a problem. But it, apparently around that time, some, somehow these diplomatic protocols didn't work and, and people took, like you pointed out, very rash decisions without kind of waiting for the traditional. This was a day and age when this, you know, a declaration of war would have been almost via letter, but instead things escalated really, really fast. And it's fascinating and, of course, uh, in, in many ways, very sad part of, of European history. It is. And you talk about letters. I don't know if you saw the declaration of war, but it was a telegram. Right. Which basically there was no negotiation. I mean, it was something, okay, tomorrow morning we attack and that's it. Yeah. Uh, now, unfortunate, and uh, it changed. Uh, I mean, I, I, I talk with some people who say that Europe went to, and they call it civil wars. They say we went through two civil wars: World War One, World War Two, mm. which basically d d destroyed us. Yeah. I, I want to bring us uh, rapidly up to up to today because 2020, arguably, uh, you know, we were sort of thrown into a new decade with a with a bang this year. Uh, for many, many reasons, uh, maybe even before COVID-19, I think arguably technology and, and other changes were already coming upon us, right? And there are political changes, of course, with Brexit and many, many trends that are coming together. How have you sort of felt this, uh, this year? Has it changed your, your outlook in any way on either business or, as we will talk about, your, your art or or indeed kind of this sense of historical legacy that you carry with you, uh, you know, from the perspective of, of being a royal. So, yes, it has changed a lot. Um, when I remember last year, there was no end in the escalation of consumption, travel, enthusiasm, uh, even uh, investment. Uh, I mean, it, it looked like you could do anything you wanted. And then, back to reality, a tiny little virus comes and says, hey guys, <laughs> and everything stopped. And it seemed almost too much. I think there's overreaction uh, everywhere. And now I've seen, uh, I don't know if you saw, but they tried to put back a curfew in uh, Naples, in Italy, three days ago. And I think there were almost riots. People went out in the streets. Right. And, so it's very, very complicated. Um, Naples is a is a city you have a relationship to. Uh, absolutely, yes, absolutely. Because that's part of your family. It's part of my family. My my mother was born in Naples. Oh. Um, you know, I spent a year in Naples as an Erasmus exchange student. I have very fond oh, memories from Naples. So that's I learned Italian and I learned to kind of I learned to live the Italian way. So when uh, you said that, it kind of rings a bell uh, because. Um, I came there right after Maradona had left, so mm -hmm. I wasn't there for the for the you know effervescence of, of. But it was kind of a sense of a renewal of of the city, and I got to experience kind of the aftermath of of that. And I I, I think I understand that when Neapolitans don't like something, they Correct. they really don't like it. In fact, I, I wanted to ask you this. Um, they told me in Naples that when you, uh, because if you look at all these monuments and the fact that it has beautiful architecture. The outside is not always very well taken care of. But what the locals are telling me is that because governments always change in Naples throughout the centuries, they didn't really care about the outside. And in fact, it would be dangerous to polish the outside. Let's keep the inside. 
So among friends, you go in and you have fantastic palaces. Uh -huh. These massive houses that obviously behind it and inside are beautiful, maybe stucco work and everything, but the front, they don't bother too much yeah. about. I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh, I didn't know that, but I'm not surprised because we, we have a say to, to live happy, live in hiding. So in a way, you don't want to bring attention too much hmm. on you. Hmm. So we're here at an investment summit and uh, you know, you are here straddling, well, at least three worlds that I can think of, you know, the, the world of, of, of art and international, uh, you know, culture that you represent also very, very heavily in your, I guess, hobby. But also, you you are here to to speak on on investment, uh, you know, evolution of investment, and, and especially this this kind of um, shared legacy a little bit that royals have with family offices. You know, wealthy families also go through generations, and they have some of the concerns, I guess. And I wanted to ask you, what is it that's similar and what's different between the concerns of a royal family when it comes to preserving legacy? And that of these, you know, wealthy families around Europe that don't necessarily are, they, they may not be royalty, but they definitely carry a, a legacy. Yes, the, the, the word legacy is very important. And that's, I think, what's common between both worlds, the royal and the, the, the business. The, when you're in business, you want to go forward. You want your business to develop. You want to, and to maintain it and keep growing. Uh, so you... You, you use different ways, you, uh, you have CEOs, you have employees, and you, you, you hope that everything works. And then you have the, the ownership, which is the family, which are not always uh, ready or uh, have been taught how to carry forward the, the, the thing. Sometimes it's, they say, oh, I'm, I'm the owner of the company and my children will do what I want. Mm. And it doesn't always happen that way. Mm. Uh, you don't have like a, an institution that helps you go forward. Whereas a royal family, you, you are there to, for the long run. You, you're not there to, to make money, but you're really there to, to, to make sure the country goes forward. And you, you're there to make sure the interests of your country are always uh, uh, done. So you, you have around you a whole group of advisors or politicians that make sure that you stay in power and that your children stay in power. So you have a kid, he's going to be king. He's groomed already from, from the age four, five, six years old, which when you are owner of a business, you, you don't groom your children right away for that. I mean, you will bring them to the office when, you're, when they're young, when they're not going to school, you will... But it's not the same thrust behind it. I would imagine that you would be a fantastic mentor for, uh, for, for a very important issue, which I know family offices struggle with, which is transition between old and new generation. And I think that hasn't gotten less important with you know, the advent of millennials who are gonna start taking over their family offices. And I'm, I'm assuming with very different views on, on what, what people should do. I remember I spent a little bit of time as a, as a wine writer and of all things, you know, wine families are very interesting when it comes to these transitions. So I got to interview a, a bunch of, especially German young uh, vintners who were just taking over their parents' vineyards. And 
you know, just as a, as a comparison, because I, you know, I studied this a little bit, they were telling me, well, you know, we actually, you know, we went to school for this. Our parents never went to school for this. We actually have strong ideas about how the quality of the wine should be. And, you know, it was interesting and maybe an improvement, but I don't think it was without tension because the parents in, in you know, in the case of wine, were not necessarily feeling that the kids fully respected them because they, the kids wanted to change, innovate, do new things, maybe even bigger, better, you know, or, or, you know, better quality. So it's not easy always when you come in as a young person or, or if you are representing the legacy and you say, wait a second, it's not about making all these changes. It's about the stability. You're right. It, it, it's a struggle uh, because, uh, as you say, you, you, your kids are educated and they know something that you didn't know. But you, when you started all your business or your, your kingdom, or you were a warrior, in case of a kingdom, you were probably a, a happy warrior and you won battles and then you created your kingdom and then you say, okay, now that's mine, I do what I think is best. Uh, in the case of a owner of a business, uh, also you struggle, you had an idea. And then, of course, what do you do with the, with the children, the millenniums, as you say? I say that you have to give space to them. You have to incorporate them earlier mm. because otherwise they will resent you. Mm. Uh, in a royal family, the problem, <laughs> and mm. that, that, that's what's interesting, is when there's a king, he's the king, he does what he wants. So even if you are his children, he's still the king. So how do you address him? How do you express your power against him? Because it, it will be a, a battle, obviously. Mm. And some people are better prepared than others and sometimes you, you, you have dramas. Well, you know, I'm sure you don't want to comment on existing, you know, situations, but we have, we have these dramas now playing out in, obviously, in, in several European uh, royal houses, partly because of modern times, partly because of change. Um, but talk to me a little bit about the role of, because you said, you know, there's always only one king. And that's if you are lucky enough to be in a country that still has royalty, right? But what about, you know, I guess a little bit your role when you are a royal, but there is something in the history that stops you from kind of exercising what your family has always done in a certain sense. That must be a, an even stronger tension. And, and it's not unique to, to your uh, royal family. There are other royal families that experience this, and, and obviously, if you are br a brother, you know your older brother, older sister. There are many, many issues that are, I have always imagined, must be really difficult to handle, and takes a great deal of maturity on the part of the king, and on the part of the younger son or daughter. Yes, uh, that is very, very true. The you see many royal families who, who like to divide their children so they get less power and then the, the head of, hmm. of the business, if I can say, <laughs> or the, the king or the queen yeah. uh, stays in power. Others, smartly, uh, we've seen recently many uh, queens gave, gave their power to their sons and so you have a lot of younger generation who's in power right now. Which is kind of nice because this will make a stability for the next 10, 20 years probably. Mm. But also, 
you know, some members of a royal family have a role, official role, and right. then maybe the first one, and then the, the other ones don't. And th that's also uh, complicated. If they, if they accept it, it's okay. Mm. If they don't, and sometimes you see uh, younger ones who don't, then they have to, to do things which uh, they were not prepared to. But, but that also unleashes enormous creativity, right? And, and I think there's a link that I wanted to maybe for you to make that link for us because there's always a source of great creativity. You have to take it from somewhere. And at least, you know, to the extent I have studied creative people and I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really engaged in that right now, whether it is in business or indeed in social change, you have to take the energy from where, uh, you know, where is your position? From where do you gain all of this creative energy? And, you know, um, the royals that make this transition, they often go into art, social charity work or, or other pursuits where they're very successful at, uh, you know, in, in having a voice that is an altern alternative voice. Tell us a little bit about how you thought about those things when, when you carved out your life. Um, interestingly, when I carved out my life, I, I followed like a career or a curriculum. I went to business school because um, I wasn't sure what else to do. And then when I finished my business school, I asked a few friends if I could work uh, in their companies to do uh, what you do when you come out of business school. So it evolved from there, but there wasn't a real plan to go and to do something. Hmm. Just things happened that way. Uh, maybe I could have put my head with other people and studied, you know, a logical, uh, best suited career for a member of a royal family, which is probably something I would do today. I would, right. I would, I would strongly advise people, and not only members of royal family, but say. Look at your background, look at the possibilities you have, look at what you've studied and try and make the best out of it. Mm. Um, it's like now when we uh, talk with family offices and we explain to them what to do also with investments, with outlook for the future. I think you don't want to waste the background you have. Mm. And, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about your current role. And then I, I, I do want to hear the story of why you went to Palm Beach to become a real estate broker <laughs> in luxury properties, because that is truly not what I would have expected if I was reading your, your profile. I agree. I, I would funny. not want, you know, I was not expecting to see you. Well, I probably wouldn't be at, in Palm Beach buying luxury property, but, but I, I would not expect to see you there. Hmm. Okay. So what I do now is, uh, as you say, I, I advise certain family offices and certain people. And the way I use my background is I tell them, listen, this is what happened to royal families. This is what worked. This is what didn't work. This is what, what could have been done to go forward. And I see a similarity with your business or your family. And um, if you don't want a catastrophe to happen, this is what you should do. Prepare, uh, make governance, mm -hmm. um, make sure you communicate regularly with your children or your grandchildren or the spouses of your family because they come in the business. You must make sure that they understand the mentality. And then, 
also look at what's going on on the planet. Hmm. Is your business still viable? Do you think? Because I, I see the, the elders, they're, they're very proud of what they've done. But, and sometimes it's, it's very hard for them to understand that their model doesn't work anymore hmm. and they have to change. Well, we are in a day and age, right, where business models sometimes don't even last a year. And here you have family offices and I guess royalty whose business models sometimes last for centuries. So it's a new world in many ways. It is. I mean, who, who would have thought a year ago that we would have COVID, uh, that you would have uh, Black Lives Matter? And if you don't react to those things uh, with, with intelligence and, uh, you know, insight, hmm. uh, I mean, lots of people are losing their businesses right now. Hmm. Those who are not uh, uh, ready. Those who didn't jump, like everybody now has been jumping to change to be online, uh, to have websites, to have uh, digitalization. But it, people who are against that, uh, not easy. Hmm. Even hotels now, I see what the new trend is. You can take a hotel room for the day to, 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 as, a, as an office to organize meetings. Uh, they, they equip you more with... Uh, telephones, uh, mm. video connections, stuff like that. Well, I, I wanted, uh, there are so many things I want to talk to you about, but definitely I want to cover this uh, issue that certainly in family offices now with this new environment post-COVID, surely real estate, which you know something mm -hmm. about, is not the only option anymore. And, and I think for some years here at Ritosa, you have seen this trend of moving gradually more into uh, more aggressively into innovation and especially technology and startups. First off, how and how long back would you say this trend, uh, you know, has lasted in, in, you know, in family offices and, you know, in this particular environment? Have you seen these topics show up over the last three years or is it the last decade that uh, family offices seriously have started to consider investing in smaller companies? which is a very big shift of business model. That is a big shift. Uh, when I used to live in New York, I used to work a lot with family offices, but on the investment, on the direct investment, like um, hedge funds. And uh, then we saw the, the, the arrival of uh, venture capital and private equity. Real estate was, I think, always a part of family office investments, whether it was private homes or offices. L lots of families who are in the industrial world, most of the time they, they owned their, the factories. And then interesting trend when the city started growing, then your factory was in the middle of a city. And the, 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 the real estate value of the factory was more than the, the business value of the factory. Well, I think that's repeating itself. History is repeating itself now because as uh, uh, at least, you know, I know uh, the situation in the U.S. where all these malls are going bankrupt uh, or, you know, all these American flagship retailers are going bankrupt, but they are selling their properties for astronomical amounts, you know, or, or at least it's worth quite a bit. And uh, the, the new uh, kings on the, on the road, you know, in business, like, you know, the Amazons are, are buying up these properties because they realize that's where the value lies. Yes, it's a very interesting trend, and I would say nothing new, but uh, some people could spot it earlier. Uh, now you have a lot of uh, investments in what they call uh, dispatching centers, or um, um, how do you call that in, in English? 
uh, when you have to have a place where you have all your warehouses and merchandise and it can be shipped fast. Right, so, distributions, Amazon call them distribution centers, yeah. where they just put all their packages before they... Uh, uh, absolutely, you know, logistics. Logistics, yeah. So that, that's a big trend right now. Right. What do you think about this uh, death of cities discussion, where people are saying, because of COVID and the certain state of technology right now, people will never move back to the office. And, and you know, you've worked in, in, in real estate. Do you believe this? Mm. Do you believe that, uh, I mean, I don't know exactly what they think is going to happen, but I mean, I, I think the most aggressive uh, argument I've heard is that one fifth will go back to the office or we'll, we'll go back to the office once or twice a week. Do you see that happening across the board? Um, what I hear, a lot of my friends miss the office atmosphere because they can be with their co-workers, they can exchange ideas. Um, you can do that via telemarketing or what do you call it, Zoom conferences. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's not the same as being with someone. You, when you're with someone, you, you can read their body language, you can feel the vibrations. You, you know, when you have an argument with someone, it's not the same as on a TV. And also from a TV, you don't know what's your background. I can be in your office, I can visit your premises, uh, there's a lot of fraud going on now with people who make fake offices and then uh, you make an investment and there was nothing. Uh, most of the time people would go and, and touch the place and look at it. You know, I, uh, I happen to have my um, Zoom calls in my attic, which actually already is an, a studio, but a lot of people think that I have a fake background because I have some <laughs> books in the back and they're like, oh, That's very funny. nice fake background, That's you know, funny. virtual background. I'm like, yeah. no, this is actually my place. Yeah. It's hard to know. It's hard to know. Yeah. Some people don't need really to go to an office. Basically, you save a lot of time by not going to an office. Yeah. Uh, you can be... Certain areas you can be more productive. Of course, if you are, if you make things manually, you cannot do it from home. Uh, you have to be in a in a place. Yeah. Uh, I've read the, the statistics. There's a lot of home office improvement uh, since since a year. Uh, real estate that's being sold, there's added a room for private office. So there's, there's a lot of developers like this. People go out of state cities and go back into the country. And no open floor plan, I'm assuming, right? <laughs> because <laughs> no you, open floor you, plan. you know, in my house, we have uh, five people on Zoom, right? So that's, yeah. uh, that's a lot. So what you have to do now is you have to have a stronger Wi-Fi at home because five people work on one Wi-Fi doesn't work. So there's all kinds of investments in, in areas like this that will improve, yeah. uh, definitely. Hmm. I want to switch, switch gears and, and talk about the future of, of, of art, because you, I know you're deeply passionate about uh, art. And you know, art is a, and photography, these are media that are rapidly digitizing, yet there's an artistic element uh, that of course can be rendered digitally or it actually happens digitally. Uh, but tell me about this field. What is it that fascinates you so much? How did this interest in photography, how did it start and how are you 
uh, carrying it out. It's a very interesting field, also investment-wise, right? I mean, I've been looking at the numbers. I don't know about photography specifically, but I know that art has outperformed almost all other asset classes consistently for the last decade. Yes. Uh, so it started an interesting way when I changed the career. A friend of mine who's a business coach advised me to not only concentrate on work, but also have a hobby to relax. And I remember that when I was younger, I used to enjoy taking photography. So we put a plan and I followed the plan. And for five years, I was diligently taking photos. And my friends kept seeing what I did and asked me to do an exhibition. And my regular answer was, no, it's for me, it's private. I don't know if it's nice, I never learned. I mean, I had all these excuses. Then eventually I, I participated in one, one show in, uh, with three other photographers and they sold one each. And I sold 30 photos in one week and I couldn't oh. believe it. And everybody told me, Michel, that's quite amazing. I'm telling that story to a friend of mine who says, why don't you use the lobby of my bank? And um, I did a second exhibition two months later and I sold again 30 photos. So I thought, well, that's easy, let's, let's do that. And then a friend of mine asked me if I had a full-frame camera. I had no idea what it was. <laughs> and then I went into buying a Leica. And uh, not buying, make an investment, as he told me. So you invest, you make better quality photos, which your customers will appreciate more and will buy more. Which he was right. But for one year, I couldn't use it. So as I told you earlier, a friend of mine was a photographer. We used to have regular lunches and he would teach me for a year. And then now I can... I'm still not perfect, but I can use it. Well, I can relate to that, right? Because I recently taken up podcasting and I was not so aware of how audio needed to sound, like many people on, on Zoom, but, you know, taking it to a, to a different level with actually recording people where the main, mm -hmm. audio, uh, you know, the main medium is, is audio. And then now moving on to, to kind of video podcasting. And it, it, there are different concerns, but audiovisual, the audiovisual language requires both creativity, but also a lot of technique. I agree with you, it's not easy. It's not easy, but it's very interesting. And uh, what I like to say is when I, when I look at things around me, sometimes I, I feel an emotion and I'm trying to capturing this emotion with the camera. Hmm. And it's, um, I, I read a German book from a German philosopher who, in the 1900s went to Japan, he wanted to learn Zen. And in those days they didn't teach foreigners Zen. So uh, his trick was to take archery lessons and his wife had to take pottery lessons because his archery teacher was a Zen master. Mm, and he very told creative. Me, yeah. So he said, basically <laughs> in Europe, when we want to do something, we concentrate our energy, we put tension, everything is hard, we want, we go, and not the, in Japan, it, you look, the arm pulls itself and the arrow flies on its own and hits the bullseye. And I would say when I take photos, sometimes it's, it takes the photo and it's like the, there's a movement between the object or the emotion around that object, me looking through the eyes of the camera and then it clicks and it, it combines the personality of me, the camera, the object, the emotion to make a unity, 
which people like or I like and it transmits. It's, mm. uh, it's a very interesting feeling. You know, I, I happen to think, and this is more a hypothesis than anything else, but this was even before COVID, but I do think that audiovisual literacy is, you know, has been underrated uh, in, in terms of the, of, of the future direction we're, we're going as a human species, because if we are evolving into something more of a virtual being where we're actually going to accept to live apart from the things and the people we love or accept to work with, you know, every day with people that we don't see on a regular basic face, uh, basis face-to-face, -face, such as, um, you know, co-workers you're working with uh, that you uh, work closely with but may have never met and have no intention to, to, to ever meet. It becomes quite important how you think about minimizing the distance or keeping the, uh, I guess, appropriate distance so that creative work can occur. Um, and I don't know that, uh, you know, the typical Zoom as we have it today is going to be enough. So, so I've been interviewing a lot of people working on technology that will change this. Um, what, what do you think are the things that makes people relate to your work? And, you know, extrapolating on that, what do you think it is that will keep us glued mm -hmm. to new media in this decade? Is it fancy colors or perfect audio or is it is it some of this artistic uh, notion that you have people have to actually start thinking about not just you know putting on makeup for the camera but there's something deeper here that we need to learn yeah. about mediated interaction Th that's very interesting and it, it brings a point before to answer is we, we have to learn to communicate with each other which we don't really necessarily do and just by you telling me that you, you had to learn how to use sound and video is already improving your communication with others because when you speak well, when you ex use the right words and when you repeat them a couple of times to people, it's, it's much better. I see a lot of people, they mumble when they talk to each other and then no, no wonder the conversation doesn't go anywhere. And the same thing with photography. If you explain well through the means of photography or video for your case, people look, they, people will stop and say, oh, I haven't seen it this way before. How interesting. Hmm. And then, for instance, this during COVID, I took a, a course from the MoMA in New York. They were giving a course on, on photography, but not uh, techniques. It was the, the interviewing photographers and seeing what they saw through their eyes. And uh, they gave a free course, so it was every morning I did that. It was very, very interesting. And explaining, communicating, spending time to learn the other, other one's feeling across from you is very, very important. And sometimes we, we don't do it because we expect that if we open ourselves, it's a sign of weakness. Yeah. When basically it's just the opposite. Because if you open yourself, you show that you're strong, you don't care. You're not scared of showing who you really are. Whereas if you don't, that's being weak. Hmm. And I think it's a whole paradigm that's, that's, uh, that's changing. Hmm. And this could be an opportunity, hmm. maybe. Do you ever speak about this dimension of your art with, uh, with your clients? Because for me, you know, what you're saying resonates. And, and I think, like you pointed out, when you share things about your life where you are actually not just 
passionate about, but you have acquired a level of insight that is different and perhaps instructive for others, even if they are not going to go on to become photographers. I mean, what you're talking about here is an insight into yourself and an insight into communication that I think, um, well, regardless what happens in the future, presumably human beings will still need to excel at communication. It's one thing we just need to keep, keep mastering. Yeah. And when I say communication, it's not only talking, it's listening also to the needs of the person next to you. And back to my photos, yes, I, I, I make stories with, with every photo. And I remember my first exhibition, I had uh, 12 photographies. And everybody who came in the gallery, I would, I would greet them and I would ask them if I could show them my photos. And then I would tell them the stories with each photos. And so many people told me what a difference that makes. When we hear what you said, uh, I want to buy one. Uh, mm. One photo I had of trunks. There's a, I took trunks at um, a family house and those trunks were used by my grandparents uh, after World War II mm. uh, to send things to each other. And they're just piled up on a corner. And uh, I say that story and I say they're full of souvenirs for me, imaginary, because I will never know what was in it but it makes me think of them. And one of my friends said, Michel, you know, I loved my grandparents. I have no memories from, no memories, no, no objects from them. I want to buy this photo, so I will think of them. And every time I go to his office, it's next to his desk, and it makes me so happy. And for him also, because he says, Michel, thanks to you, my grandparents are alive today. Have you, uh, have you thought of, of creating um a compliment with your art that actually is the story around it? Because, you know, usually it's just, some people don't even title their art because they say, you know, photo number 37, they, they refuse oh. because they think it limits you. But you seem to have the opposite experience that some of your uh, best clients, uh, I guess, you know, who have bought your, your uh, photographies, they really appreciate the story behind it. I, I find that with, with all art, it gets better and not diminished at all because if I know the story behind it, sometimes you, you, know, you, you are always free to dismiss the story and say, it means different things to me. And in fact, it mm -hmm. always means different things. So there's nothing threatening about the story behind art, I think, but it's not always in the foreground. No, it's true. Actually, some, when I say some of those stories, they ask me, could you write it down for us? So I put it on a sticker and I put it behind the photo. But you're right, it could be something more uh, automatic, right. which I haven't done. But actually, I have published one or two books, and in, in those books I write. I put the, right. uh, the end of the book, I write. I don't want to put it under the photo, because I want whoever is looking at the photography to, to go in his own mind and in his own world. And that that may be the explanation, right? That you, you don't want it too out there. You want people to have Correct. the primacy of just visual. Yeah. 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 Fascinating stuff. Fascinating. Um, and, uh, I never told you about Palm Beach, why I went there. No, tell me. <laughs> Basically, I went on a vacation for, 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 for two weeks to, to, to go in the sun, to leave Paris. And I had just broken up with a girlfriend in Paris. And after a week and a half, I thought, hmm, it's kind of nice here. It's uh, beautiful weather, very nice people. I mean, Florida in winter, when you come from Paris, where it's gray and rainy. And then a lot of people were telling me, Michel, you should go into real estate, go to real estate. 
So I thought, okay, I, I had, you know, I, I didn't really have a job in Paris. I, I finished the training in a, in a, in a family office. So I, I took my real estate license and the first week I sold the most expensive house in town. It was beginner's luck, but uh, it worked. So I thought, whoa, that's good. And uh, the next week I sold the second house. So I thought, let's stay here. You have talent. I have, something is going on here. Let's stay here. So that, that's what I did. And, um, and you and stayed for 15 I years? Stayed, uh, yeah, not 15, but close. I mean, yeah. 12 and a half. Yeah. Time flew. And, uh, well, the next year I didn't sell a house. So then I went to school because the, the Americans are very organized. So there's the, when, when you have your real estate license, you're a member of the association of, of realtors, as they say. And then the, the, this association is part of the national association. And there's the, the, the Florida one. And they gave courses every mm -hmm. month or every, I don't know how many, how often, but every other, other month. And then they have conventions all, all around the States. So I went through all those conventions and it's like a university. You pick up classes, you have guys who really made a huge success in their careers who share. This is very American also. So I learned a lot of things. Hmm. So for one year I did four maybe conventions. Hmm. And then the, the, the next year I had um, 10, exclusive houses for sale, hmm. which I had every year I renewed them and I sold them every year. Hmm. So I was one of the top brokers uh, wow. in town. So America has an ambivalent relationship with many things among those royal families, right? Famously, if you become a citizen, I just uh, did. So I know on the questionnaire, it says, do you renounce all foreign potentates and things and that? Oh, really? and, yeah, yeah, and including your titles and you know, whatever. It's an interesting point of view. How, how did you feel there in terms of your identity? Did you have to change the way that you approached people? I'm assuming you didn't force people to call you your royal highness. No, I didn't, but I still used uh, my, my title. I didn't put the title on the business card though. Right. Whereas in Europe, uh, sure, sure. Uh, over there I didn't. Um, I was a bit shy because since we advertised houses every weekend, there was my name in the paper. Right. And uh, actually thinking of it now, I should have put the title Prince. I think more people would have called me. And They I, would, but you know, in America, uh, that title is not protected. So I have a friend actually who... Um, he did some. Uh, he was a comedian at the time, and he he did some research and figured out that in the U.S. the title Sir is actually not protected. So he, uh, I think, applied to change his name, or or actually he just started calling himself Sir, you know, and then to his name, and no one could could stop him. So he okay. to this day uses it as a marketing name. Sure. And I think uh, it's a clever strategy. Of course, right? very America. That those are the opportunities that the culture <laughs> yes. provides for you. Yeah. And sometimes there are funny things. I was I was at the dinner in Florida and they had name tags on the on the in front of everyone's plate and there was a French Duke so it's D-U-C and some American just picked up the card and I go hey duck my name is John <laughs> <laughs> the French Duke I think he fainted <laughs> he was not used to that well, there are these culture clashes when you are yeah. when you you know when, when you come from a from a family from a royal family have you uh, 
I mean, do, do you ever feel that people don't know how to act around rules? Surely it, it is sometimes an initial barrier that you might have to just address in some way. Yes, it, it, it is a barrier. Um, some people are embarrassed for whatever reason, because everybody has in his own mind, what is it to be a royal family? Um, some people like it, don't like it, are scared. but. So I have to put them at ease. Sometimes sure. I tell them, uh, do you know who I am? You don't do this. Or, uh, but, but most of the time, people are curious. And um, I, I never had to fight with anyone mm. who told me, uh, you dirty prince or something like that. Mm. No. Mm. no, no, people are always asking the story, where it comes from, why. There's a lot of curiosity. I, I want to round off by talking a little bit more explicitly about the future because this is kind of what my podcast is about the next decade. And, and, mm -hmm. and I wonder, from your perspective, what does the next decade hold for, for royal families, for uh, family offices, for, for, for art, for any of the topics we've talked about? What, what do you see in the next decade? Is it a, is it a good decade? Is it a risky, dangerous decade? What, what do you see happening to the things that you uh, have cared about? Okay, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think in times like now, which are complicated, people in general, you, you want an image of hope or direction. And I believe that royal families are definitely there to give a direction because, I mean, if you face, if you look at it, we've been here through centuries We've been through revolutions, we've been through killings, we've been through... But we're still here. Uh, people have money, they can lose it. But your story, of your history of royal family, you cannot lose it. Uh, basically, anyone cannot lose his identity. But some people put more emphasis maybe on, on money versus identity. Hmm. Uh, the second thing, art is always there to lift one's spirit. And... Uh, I think it's there to stay. Hmm. Um, combining art into royalty, I think is very strong. Uh, what I would like to say also is the, the humankind has a great potential. Uh, I mean, look right now, all the energy put to find a solution, to, to adapt. I mean, it's amazing what's been going on for a month, a month, yeah. a year now. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's an interesting time. It's a very interesting time. And interesting times bring change, and change bring opportunity. And opportunity means you have to keep your eyes open and really uh, jump. Hmm. Do you see royalty continuing for decades and decades and hundreds and hundreds of years? Do you think there still is a role for, for royal families in, in charting, like you said, change for humanity? Yes. Definitely. Hmm. Uh, it's a bit controversial in some countries right now, but I believe so. Hmm. Well, it has weathered many other storms. So I, I guess from one side you could sort of say what's different about this storm. Um, this storm brings resentment at every level of the population whether it's you're on the bottom, in the middle, on top, we have really the same problems and it makes life very difficult. Mm. So I think you need humility, you need vision. Um, 
and, and you need really to be everybody close to each other. Do you think we're, we are in a revolutionary era again? I mean, there's been much talk about sure. whether, whether these social movements could extend into the kinds of things that w we later characterize as revolutions, but they weren't necessarily called that at the time, or at least the year they happened. Are, are, you know, is the potential there, do you see? Uh, is this uh, aggression, this anger, so deep-seated in some societies that if it's not addressed, it could go in that direction? I'm scared of that. I'm not a specialist. Uh, what I read from the papers, and again, it's what you read, I don't know how accurate it is, uh, because I think sension, sense, how do you say that, make sensation uh, sells papers, but uh, a lot of my friends, they don't read media anymore, they don't watch TV, because they're just upset at all those news that are mm. hammering you with uh, pessimism. Mm. Well, that leads to the discussion, I mean, is the media really responding well to, to these changes? Because, uh, like you said, it's, uh, you know, well, there's discussions of sort of fake news, but then there's also just the, the fact that the, new, the news is very short-termist, right? It talks about things that are just happening right here and now, and there's, I think, arguably not so much about the longer-term prospects. Yeah, I agree with you. The, the long-term is important one has to really stop before you make a decision or a reaction, sorry, on, on what, what you read in the media and just try to think for yourself is what's behind that, what's really going on. And I think when you, when you make a, an investment, whether you're in a family office, you won't listen at all the noise around that present your company or business and idea. You, you will do your due diligence, you will check, you will... Uh, and uh, we don't do that with news. Hmm. Last question. I always ask everybody I interview this. How, how does one learn more about the things that you are, um, I guess, an expert on through your family, through your profession? How do you, how do you stay up to date and, and, and so you can give advice to others? And what is your advice for people who want to know more about what's happening in the family office space? or indeed what's happening in kind of the, you know, who want to be more intelligent on the role of royals in, in, in this world. Where, where does one seek out information about these things? Um, luckily, we, there's information around. One event is like where we are now, those uh, family office conferences where you meet people from uh, all over the globe and during a few days everybody exchange and um, the other day they were telling us the people from the Middle East, they invest principally in the Middle East and a bit in the, in the neighborhood. The Europeans, we invest more in Europe, the Indians. So we, we all have our areas of expertise. And if you don't have someone who can help you, you, you will not yeah. go forward yeah. or further areas. Mm -hmm. um, then, of course, there's a lot of, you can read these books, there is uh, uh, other groups that meet, that exchange ideas, things like that. Well, I, I thank you so much for, for the uh, life experience that you have shared more than anything else. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Mm, thank you. You have just listened to episode 60 of the Futurized podcast with host Trunarne Winheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of royalty. Our guest was His Royal Highness Prince Michel de Yugoslavie.
grandson of King Umberto of Italy and Prince Paul of Yugoslavia. In this conversation, we talked about growing up as a pan-European royal. We cover his deep interest in art and success with exhibiting his photography. We also touch on trends in family wealth considerations. We discuss his time as a high-end real estate broker in Palm Beach, Florida. And he shares his life experience as a royal and the lessons that apply for anybody with a family legacy. At the end, we briefly discuss the future role of royalty. My takeaway is that the future of royalty is going to be interesting to watch. In this day and age of constant frenzy, the timeless aspects of royalty, even as history wrecks kingdoms, provides a context by which to view ourselves in a perspective that values legacy and experience across generations. I'm reminded that regardless of wealth or stature, families tend to outlast individual destinies. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.